Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Good morning. Uh, as Andy very accurately said, uh, my name is Gunter. If we haven't met before, uh, I'm part of the pastoral care team here at, at BCV. Uh, when, I, when I spoke the last time on, on a Sunday a couple of uh, months ago, it was on the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark's gospel. Uh, and it's a really, really rich passage that I found personally very meaningful. And it was a real honor for me to be able to, to share with you on that. Um, when Andy then asked me to, to preach again today, I, I did also think, well, great, you know, something different, something new, a nice, nice fresh challenge. Uh, and then I saw the passage. It's the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> uh, but actually, but actually, I'm not a one-trick pony. Um, <laughs> uh, there are, obviously, there's, you know, there's similarities between the two, no doubt. Uh, but there's, there's also quite a bit that's different about these two passages. Most noticeably, perhaps, that in the feeding of the 4,000, so the passage that we're taking a look at uh, today, it, it includes these interactions immediately after the miracle with two sort of distinct groups of people. Firstly, the Pharisees, so, so Jesus' enemies, for uh, lack of a, a better term, and then also with his disciples, so with his friends. And it's those... Interactions in particular, I've got to confess, I found really challenging as I, as I prepared for, for this sermon this week, because those conversations, as, as you look at them, what we'll see, they essentially ask us or, or invite us to consider what is our response to this Jesus in Mark's gospel, who, who feeds crowds, who you know, heals the sick, uh, casts out demons, raises the dead, um, does the most amazing things, give the most amazing teaching, uh, interacts with people in phenomenal ways. But what is our response to him when he operates in a way we don't like or that surprises us? Um, when he challenges us, he, he challenges our expectations, our worldview, what we want or think we need from God. So it's a nice light, light topic. Uh, clearly. And on top of that, here's the bonus content. Uh, fair warning, I'm going to be bringing out some Greek today. Not too much, just a little bit. Now, some of you, when I said that, you were like, come on, yes, bring a preacher. Let's get those biblical languages rolling. And others of you were thinking, I wonder if I could fake an urgent phone call right now. Or just kind of, you know, slip off the loo and not come back. Uh, I promise, though, not to overindulge. Uh, in that regard, and to make it worth your while. So let's just go ahead and dive right in, shall we? This is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Uh, and the last one was at the feeding of the 5,000, although, of course, a lot has happened from then to now. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days. They've got nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have a long distance or have come a long distance. 
His disciples answered, but, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Which is an interesting comment uh, on their part, if you consider they were at the feeding of 5,000 not that long ago. In fact, they helped Jesus, but we'll come back to that. Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, so he gave thanks for them, and he told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate, and they were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 5,000 were present. And after he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the region of Delmanutha. We'll just pause there. There is more, but we'll stop there for a second and, and just consider what's, what's going on here so far. Uh, there's a lot we could talk about in, in this passage. Uh, for example, some people say that the feeding of the 5,000, so today's, oh, sorry, um, the, the passage in, in chapter 6 we looked at a month ago was in Jewish territory. And then today's feeding of the 4,000, that's in Gentile territory. So they kind of see that as significant. And, and that's certainly a possibility, although Mark isn't particularly explicit about it. What, what really stands out for me, though, in, in this passage, in this, this, this kind of first, first part, is a few things. One is, and I men- we mentioned this already very briefly, is, is the slowness of the disciples to not even consider, you know, Jesus has done this before. Maybe he could do it again. Uh, And that's actually a recurring theme in Mark's gospel, what many commentators call the dullness of the disciples. Very kind. Um, In fact, one of them even calls it their arrested development. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, I must confess, I love this. I love their dullness because it gives me such great hope. Uh, I often feel, I know I'm here preaching, so I must know stuff, but seriously, I often feel like I'm so slow to catch on to what God is doing. I'm so easily distracted. I just love it that Jesus chose to spend time with, to invest in, and eventually commissioned and sent to do extraordinary things. People who are really very, very normal uh, and, and who I can really, really relate to. So that's one thing. And another thing that stands out to me is, is the magnetism of Jesus. That people would come from, from all over, from great distances, and spend three days with him. Uh, and at least part of that without, without food. Just to be near him, to be with him, to, to hear what he has to say. I don't know about you. If, at work, if I'm in the meeting for more than an hour, I get really cranky. Um, that's why I love Teams, you know, uh, or we use it at work like Zoom. Um, you can do other stuff while you're on the meeting. But if you, if you sit there in person, oh my gosh. Or food, right? I can't go, ask my wife, I can't go more than half a day without food uh, before losing the plot. And they're, they're there for three days with Jesus. So what is it about him that he can, he can do that? We've talked about it before when when I spoke uh, a few months ago about the calling of the first disciples in Mark chapter 1, when they just dropped everything, including their their fishing nets, so their their means to a livelihood to follow him. There's just something electric about Jesus. There's just something weighty about him. There's something really significant about him that is utterly compelling, 
Because, as Mark sets out at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, verse 1, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the maker and the master of the universe himself. Becoming flesh, walking amongst us, presencing himself with us in order to come and redeem the world. That's just who he is. And I, every time I read a passage where you just see people zoom in on him, it's like they're, you know, they're, they're just drawn to him. It, it really draws me as well. It makes me just kind of realize all over again, this is the Jesus that we're talking about in Mark's gospel. This is the Jesus that we're here to worship this morning. That's who he is. And then lastly, I'm, just, I'm struck in this, this part of the passage by the, the compassion of Jesus. In the first uh, couple of verses, he says, I've got compassion for these people, and that's why he, you know, he feeds them. And so here's your first bit of Greek for the day. The word in the original text for compassion is splangnitsumai, from the word splangnon, uh, which is your gut. And in the ancient world, that's where the kind of the seat of your emotions was. And I just love it that when, when it just kind of illustrates that when Jesus has compassion for people, it's not that he feels kind of a vague sense of niceness or kindness or sympathy. He feels a gut-wrenching emotion towards them. He feels stuff, he feels it in his gut when he has compassion for them, when he has compassion for us and for, for their needs and our needs. And there's just something very potent, I think, about that, about this kind of cocktail of ingredients. You know, Jesus is weighty. He is significant. He's the Son of God. He's important. And rather than allowing that to be a good reason to keep his distance or treat us with disdain or with just a vague sympathy, he is moved in his gut by us. He loves us. And he's kind towards us. And he's patient with us. And he acts in great power on our behalf. And you know, that, that might be quite a new concept for you. You know, maybe unlike anything you've ever uh, thought or been taught about who God is, how he sees you, feels about you. Or, I imagine for many of us, it's not new to us. But for some of us, it's still going to feel somehow just kind of fresh and new, even just to say that out loud today. Because life and the things of life and the many voices in life have just done a really good job of convincing us otherwise. What I'd like to do right now is actually just take a moment, just before we carry on, and just invite Jesus, the one we're talking about, to just come and himself, just come and remind us of who he is, remind us of how he feels about us. So I'm just going to just stop talking for a second. Lord, we... Jesus, it's great to see you on the page. We love to talk about you. But we also thank you that you're real, that you're here by your Holy Spirit. Would you come and reveal to us right now, for the first time or just all over again, the truth of who you are and how you feel about us? Got this, um, I just got this feeling that um, there's someone here today when, as we were kind of doing that, you just you feel really alone. 
Like you're, you feel like an orphan, like you're alone in the world. And um, I, just, I just felt Jesus um, wanting to say to you that you're not alone. He sees you. He loves you. All right, let's keep, let's keep, um, let's keep reading, see what happens next. So the Pharisees came. They began to question him. To test him, they asked him for a sign from, from heaven. So here's the, the first interaction that I mentioned that immediately after the miracle. Uh, Jesus has had run-ins with the Pharisees before, and there's definitely a, a sort of an aggressiveness to their approach in this particular passage. In the original Greek, uh, when they, they came to him, the word exailthon means to, to literally come out at him, kind of like the way a military formation would come out at their enemies. And not only do they question him, but the word that Mark uses has this really antagonistic connotation of, of disputing him or confronting him or opposing him. Uh, and then the word for test doesn't mean an objective test where you're genuinely trying to evaluate if something true or not and you'll just accept the results. Instead, it means they've already been convinced that something is wrong, that it's an obstacle that has to be disproved, it has to be discredited, it has to be removed at all costs. In fact, that word for, for test only occurs four times in Mark's gospel. The first one is when Satan tries to take out Jesus in the wilderness. That's how he tests uh, Jesus, uh, and then the, um, the other three times are all the Pharisees, including today's passage. So I think it's fair to say they're not here for some friendly banter, and uh, they, they're definitely not coming at this very open-minded. Weirdly then, they ask him for a sign, as though, you know, feeding 4,000 people isn't a pretty good sign, or feeding 5,000 people not that long before that, or healing the blind, or healing the deaf, or you know, raising the dead, casting out demons. What, what kind of sign did they want? But here's the thing. They don't really want the sign at all. It's clear that no sign will ever satisfy them. They don't contest that those other miracles happened, or that Jesus did them. They were there for at least some of them. What they are contesting is that those miracles, and that Jesus are from God. And so they're basically taunting him. They're saying, there's nothing you can do that will change our minds or convince us that you are anything other than what we already believe you to be. An imposter, an emissary of Satan, our enemy. Now why? Why would they, the, the, the leaders, the teachers, God's people, do that? Why would they close themselves off? Especially, you know, to someone as clearly uh, magnetic and compassionate and powerful and wise as Jesus. And given how much the people of God and they themselves have been waiting for somebody like that, certainly for the Messiah, to come. Because he didn't meet their expectations of what that should look like, how it should be when the kingdom of God does finally arrive. For them, it should be a national deliverance for the Jewish people only, and only for the worthy, only those that strictly observe uh, the law, certainly not sinners and you know, tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, all the people Jesus seems to keep spending his time with. 
And it should be a kingdom, it should be a, a deliverance where, where they, as the recognized leaders and teachers of God's people, are right in the thick of it. They're in the middle of it. They shouldn't somehow find themselves on the fringe, as seems to have happened with Jesus. And so even when something far better than what they were ex expecting, far more beautiful, far more powerful, far more inclusive, far more transformative in the person and in the words and the works of Jesus, comes along and stares them right in the face, they will not budge. So Jesus sighs deeply. The original Greek reads that Jesus groaned in his spirit. A word that expresses not so much anger or, or indignation, but just a rather a, a deep despair or dismay. And he says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Suggesting it's not just the Pharisees. They're almost representative, if you like, of other people, this generation. He says, truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. It would literally do no good. They've already turned their hearts against him. What good would one more sign do? And then he left them, and he got back into the boats, and he crossed to the other side. Then we come to the second interaction that, that I mentioned after this miracle. First, you've got the, the Pharisees, and then you've got the disciples. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat, which is not... Ideal, particularly considering there were so, you know, there were so many leftovers. Uh, we had a Thanksgiving thing at our house last night for Ruth's extended family, and you'll never guess what I had for breakfast. Leftover Thanksgiving food. Um, so, you know, come on, guys, think with your stomachs. Bring some food with you. Um, but it's not the end of the world, except right at this moment, Jesus, who is still thinking of his, this encounter with the Pharisees, is still really kind of just weighing on his mind, he says to them, be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. In other words, beware of, of that kind of hard-heartedness that just gets into and it infects everything. In the Old Testament, yeast or, or leaven symbolized an unhealthy, sort of corruptive, infectious power. And, say, and so what he's saying is, you know, beware of hard-heartedness because it gets into everything. It just gets into how you relate to God, to yourself, to other people. It infects other people. Look out for that. All the while, though, even as Jesus is clearly anguished about this, his disciples, with all the sharpness of mind that has been so characteristic of them throughout Mark's gospel, they hear just that one word, yeast. And they discussed this with one another, and they said, oh, it's because we have no bread. We should have brought those leftovers. I told you, we should have brought those leftovers. That's, that's got to be what he's talking about. Poor Jesus. I mean, you know, he's already had a rough day. It would be nice if, if his friends were just that little bit more emotionally aware on the ball. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asks them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Which is a quote from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, also from Ezekiel. You know, do, you, do you really not get what I'm talking about here? 
And you know, as, as far as bread goes, don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. So why, why are you worried about bread? He said to them, do you still not understand? I mean, do you not get yet who I am, what I'm capable of, what I'm about, why I'm here? You know, Jesus isn't angry at the disciples. He's, he's bemused, he's, he's frustrated by their slowness to, to pick up on things. But he, he knows they, they'll get there. In fact, not long after this, uh, in Mark 8, verse 29, I think, so I think it might be next week or the week after, we'll get there. In what's considered to be the turning point in, in Mark's gospel, almost exactly halfway through the book, Peter professes, he says, you are the Messiah. You know, he gets it. He, he gets there. They all do, and they eventually go on and do amazing things that lead the early church. His main frustration here isn't with them. They're a bit slow, but their hearts are in the right place. They'll get there. His frustration is the Pharisees. It's their hard-heartedness that has so profoundly dismayed him. How are our hearts when it comes to Jesus? Are, are they soft or are they hard? When, when Jesus challenges your worldview, the way that you expect things to be, or when he asks you to engage with him on something, it doesn't matter if it takes us a long time to catch on, if like the disciples it feels like we keep taking you know, two steps forward and, and one step back. But what is the disposition of our hearts fundamentally to Jesus when he, when he does that, when he challenges us? Are we, are we open? Do we, do we turn instinctively towards him or do we instinctively turn away and close ourselves off? My own life has been kind of a mixture of both. I have foundationally opened myself to Jesus. You know, I've trusted him as the source of my salvation. I've trusted him as the way for me to connect to God the Father, who is loving and powerful, a way to a relationship with him. I've also done some brave and courageous things in my life. I've stepped out of my comfort zone in order to respond to Jesus, to, to say yes to him and things I felt like he was leading me into. I have also, on other occasions obstinately refused to budge, uh, to, to do as he asks, even to really listen to what he's saying, or in other instances where I think there's something I may or may not want to do, and I suspect his opinion won't necessarily concur with mine, I have just not asked him. Uh, and then he, he chose to speak to me about it anyway, I was very, very, very grumpy, and withdrawn and defensive. And I imagine you're the same, some sort of mixture of the two. It's unlikely that you're here today or that you're listening online if, if you've you know, absolutely decided against opening yourself to Jesus altogether. The chances are that you, you either are or you have been open to Jesus. It's also very likely that, like me, you will have struggled or you are currently struggling or you very soon will struggle with staying open to Jesus when he challenges you, when he challenges your expectations 
or your worldview or what you think you, you want or you need from God. How might it look if in those moments, rather than hardening our hearts, we were to take a decision to stay facing, stay turned towards him and, and be open? Imperfectly, stumblingly, maybe not always understanding, but what, what good might that do in us that maybe couldn't happen otherwise? What kind of growth might, might we see in our lives? What kind of maturity, what kind of trust and growth of intimacy with God might, might that foster? What, what previous hurts might he heal? What else might he do? What, what good might he do through us as agents not of our kingdoms, but of his, of the kingdom of God the master and maker of the universe, who is so weighty, he is so good, and presences himself with us in order to change our lives and to change this world. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.